You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode number 57. I'm Steve Skojek and I will be your waiter this evening. It's actually not evening, it is noon. Today is Friday, January 10th, 2020. It is my son's birthday today, and uh, I am doing this instead of going out to lunch with him, so you better appreciate it. I'm going to have dinner with him tonight, so it'll be fine. It's also the anniversary of my proposal to my lovely wife. I proposed to her on this day in um, 2003 at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. Yep, proposed right there in the crypt church in front of the tabernacle. For those of you who know, it's a pretty pretty good spot for that. So today uh, is our first podcast of the new year, and I wanted to um, talk about something that's been on my mind a little bit. We're a little behind on some things. Uh, Happy New Year, first of all. Merry Christmas. Still in the Christmas season. I hope everybody had a very good Christmas. I got to see my uh, parents and my youngest brother for the first time in a while. They came out to visit for the first time uh, to the lovely state of Arizona, which was fun. We got to uh, go up to the Grand Canyon in the snow, which was actually absolutely beautiful. In fact, uh, if you're watching the video version of this, I'll throw up a little bit of um, images and video. The first time I ever saw the Grand Canyon actually was in uh, 1998. Many of you have seen the story or even uh, heard the podcast about the time that uh, my friends and I did the pilgrimage to Mexico City for the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe in 1998. Well, on the way back, we came up uh, through Arizona because uh, the guys I was traveling with were from Denver uh, and Idaho, respectively, and so they were heading home. So I caught a ride in Denver to go back to New York, but we came up through Arizona. And uh, it was actually the first time I'd really spent any time in Arizona. And it was the first time I saw the Grand Canyon and there was snow on the Grand Canyon, which was cool. Um, But this time it was absolutely gorgeous. But it was also completely freezing. I think we went the Saturday after Christmas. So Christmas was on a Wednesday here. I'm talking about this year. Took my parents up there. It was the Saturday after Christmas. And, uh, it was like maybe 24 degrees at the Grand Canyon with the sun up, and the wind chill was brutal. I mean, I'm from upstate New York originally. Apparently, I have adapted to Arizona because I was freezing even with layers and a North Face jacket on and everything. So we didn't stay out there for that long, and the traffic was ridiculous. It took us 45 minutes to get into the Grand Canyon just to get through the entrance gate And then there was no parking, so I let them out so they could go see it, and I missed their initial reactions, which, you know, that's always the best thing about taking somebody to see something cool. You drive four hours. There was snow on the way up, so it was four hours because of the snowy roads and stuff. And then I didn't even get to see them see the Grand Canyon for the first time. So that was a little bit of a bummer. So I dropped them off. I found a parking spot. We went out. We spent as much time as we could take the cold. It was absolutely stunning. I mean, these pictures, I think... They, no pictures do justice to the Grand Canyon, but these are the closest I've ever taken, and I've been up there a bunch of times. So 
really, really beautiful. We get back in the car. It took us over an hour to get out of the parking lot. We were actually going to go to another vantage point. There's all these different viewing stations around the Grand Canyon. We never got a chance because we couldn't get out of the parking lot. It was so many people. So I don't know if that's normal after Christmas. I don't know if it's normal when it's cold. I don't know if it's normal if it's been snowing because there was a lot of snow up there. And it was beautiful for taking pictures. But holy cow, it was crazy. So that was fun. We did a few things, got some tacos. You know, you come to Arizona, you got to get tacos. Took them up to some mountain trails here in town. It was pretty neat. Um, uh, it was good. It was good to have a week or so uh, to just not think about work, not think about everything that's going on in the church. But now we're back. We're back at work and we've got stuff we've got to deal with. And so what I want to talk about today and I'm a little bummed because I had originally planned to have a guest today. I was going to have Drew Belsky, who is our senior editor here at 1 Peter 5, but he uh, was unable to actually make the show, so I'm flying solo today. Um, but it would have been interesting to have his perspective because Drew not only edits for us, he also edits uh, for LifeSite News, and he's worked for some other publications. And I want to talk about something that was said recently by everybody's favorite um, neocon potted plant kind of guy, George Weigel. By the way, thanks to my friend Ryan Ellis for the perfect description of George Weigel. I don't think I've ever heard a better one. Um, and I actually previously in another video, I had attributed that accidentally to first thing senior editor Matthew Schmitz. Schmitz was just quoting Ryan. I messed that one up. So Ryan, you get the credit. Anyway, in the article at First Things, uh, which was also republished at the National Catholic Register, Weigel gave a bunch of suggested New Year's resolutions. And, you know, they're all of varying and platitudinous value, but there was one that stood out, and it has caused a lot of controversy, unsurprisingly. Basically, what Weigel said is that Catholics should avoid alternative Catholic media and stick to establishment, status quo stuff. He specifically referenced the Catholic blogosphere, but I think that he is not just referring to anybody with a blog. He's talking about publications like ours. So let me read what he said to you, and I will do it in my amazing George Weigel impression that I think really speaks to the spirit of his bloviation while being technically 100% wrong. Here goes. <clears throat> I have to get into character. Yeah. <laughs> Resolve to limit your exposure to the Catholic blogosphere. In 2019, many Catholic websites went bonkers. There is no need to click on sites that specialize in all hysteria or all propaganda all the time. If you want reliable Catholic news, visit the websites of the Catholic News Agency and National Catholic Register. If you want sane commentary on the turbulent Catholic scene, go to the websites of Catholic World Report, First Things, and The Catholic Thing. That's more than enough for anyone. Limiting your blogosphere browsing to these sites while ignoring the hysteria mongers and propagandists will lower your blood pressure while keeping you well informed. So yeah, again, that's not what George Weigel sounds like, but he should. Now, there's a bit to parse here. Um, first of all, what, you know, the question here seems to be at least a little bit about reliability, but it's also about kind of 
sanity. I mean, he's talking about websites that specialize in all hysteria or all propaganda all the time. This is something, this is a charge that I've heard for a very long time. Uh, and it's usually uh, leveled at people, um, I'm just leveled, leveled by people at publications like, let's say, 1 Peter 5. We'll just use this as an example because this is the one I have the most experience with. They level these charges at us, but they don't really read what we write. And I've often challenged people. I've said, you know what? If you think that what we're saying is hyperbolic or you think that it's exaggerated or whatever, or most importantly, if you think it's factually incorrect, please let me know because I'd like to correct it. I would like to know where we are mistaken because I can't fix it if you don't tell me. And invariably, uh, they have nothing to offer on that front because there's really we, – we actually work really hard to make sure – that we get things right. You know, we're not an out and out news organization. We don't have professional journalists on our payroll. I'm not a journalist. I'm a commentator. Uh, I didn't go to journalism school. I never intended to be a journalist. I think journalism is a really tough job and it's done really well by a very few people. I think Edward Penton, if you really want to go to the sites that he recommends, the National Catholic Register, Ed Penton is hundred percent the guy I respect most in Catholic journalism. Um, I think that at times uh, people like uh, Ed Condon and JD Flynn at Catholic News Agency do some really good reporting. They did very good work on the Cardinal Pell case. They have been doing excellent work on the Vatican financial scandals, which are just mind-bogglingly uh, difficult labyrinthine topics to cover and make accessible to people. It makes you want to pull your hair out and you got to make sure you get everything right because you don't want to have your facts wrong on a story like that. So there, there is good Catholic journalism being done. Now, Penton, I would differentiate from the guys at Catholic News Agency because Penton doesn't turn away from a story because, you know, it makes him uncomfortable. He doesn't backpedal or soft pedal things because... He has confirmation bias. He just reports what he finds out, and a lot of times what he finds out is bad, and he puts it forward anyway. I feel like the guys at Catholic News Agency have a tendency to understate or soft-sell things that are much more significant. They seem to struggle with pattern recognition. You know, It's like every instance of a papal scandal is a brand new thing, and there's never been any before, and they don't look at the fact that this is stuff that builds up over time and that the benefit of the doubt should be given to someone when there's a doubt. And there's no more doubt when there's hundreds and hundreds of incidents of the same thing. So we can go way into the weeds on that. But, you know, reliability there. There's real good journalism that's being done. And and I have no problem with people turning to them. Uh, I think uh, Catholic World Report is great. I think Catholic Thing is great. Catholic World Report, Carl Olson, uh, he's a great guy. And he and I have corresponded and we interact on Twitter and stuff. And I think we're pretty much mostly on the same page about things. Uh, I know less about the guys at the Catholic thing, but they seem to be doing good stuff. First thing, first things does some really good stuff. I mean, more than they've, I've ever seen them do before in the last year or two. I think there's a lot of people who are awake to stuff that's going on. So I don't really necessarily have a problem with Weigel's suggestions, but I also think there's more here than meets the eye. And I, and I think that um, it is indisputable that these publications were not covering what was really going on that was really concerning in the church 
um, until alternative independent Catholic media forced them to do it. Now everybody's talking about, wow, there's problems. This papacy is a problem. But the conversation had to change and they had to be forced to look at it. And that is that is the value of the very thing that George Weigel is saying, don't pay attention to. Don't look at these guys, you know, these rebels, you know, this, this hive of scum and villainy that, you know, has risen up and they're rabble rousers and all this stuff. But George Weigel wasn't willing to tell the truth when he needed to. You know, he's been pushed to the point where even from within within his ossified position, he's having to admit that there are disturbing things on the horizon. But he wasn't willing to do that before. So, I mean, you ask the question, what's reliable Catholic news? I mean, is it news that's refused to cover the problems uh, about the pontificate until they had no choice? Is it news that papers over the many scandalous actions of the bishops because there's a need to maintain a positive relationship with them or with powerful donors that are connected to them? Is it news that's so dedicated to confirmation bias, you know, that the church is in a great place and it's the new springtime and Francis is just the greatest, you know, that it's agonizing to read it because it's so far off the mark. Is it news that publishes people like Weigel, whose self-aggrandizement knows no limits? I mean, the guy is a relentless self-promoter. And by his own admission, I mean, he was on, I, I talked about this in one of my One Peter Five Minute videos, but he was on with Raymond Arroyo a couple months ago, and he admitted to him, yeah, I knew about uh, Archbishop Vigano's claim that McCarrick was under unofficial sanctions for years. He told me about it on several occasions. I've known about it for years. I looked. I couldn't find a story that George Weigel had written anywhere. Now, maybe he did something on TV and it wasn't searchable, but I didn't find any articles from him saying, you know, McCarrick was under sanctions and he's doing this stuff. Vigano broke this story in 2018. If Weigel, who is in a privileged position in terms of media and access, he brags about his papal audiences and his friendship with John Paul II, and he's putting out a book every five minutes. Why didn't he say something about it? Why didn't Weigel come forward before Vigano had to release this testimony and then go off into hiding for his fear of his life? Why didn't Weigel say something? The guy has a bully pulpit. Use it. But this status quo bullcrap was everywhere, and it's why alternative Catholic media had to break through. So the question that's raised by all of this is, again, what's the value of alternative Catholic media? Alternative Catholic media breaks through where establishment Catholic media won't. But there's another question here, which is who qualifies? You know, I've listed some names and some publications, but it's interesting to see how different people categorize it. Terry Mattingly writing Forget Religion today has an article about uh, Uncle Teddy McCarrick, because that's not the grossest thing in the world is the idea of calling him Uncle Ted. Um has apparently been moved out of the Capuchin Friary in Kansas where he's been staying and somehow uh, successfully prevented from being assassinated for the last 17 months. I don't know how that happened. I mean, the guy, you would think, uh, you know, like some albino assassin or something. Well, th those are the Vatican assassins. But, I mean, you know, no snipers, nothing? I don't know. It's amazing. But anyway, he apparently moved someplace else. 
And uh, the rumors that I've been seeing circulating say it's Florida. He's gone to Florida, Madge. But apparently that's not confirmed. And, um, you know, Church Militant is the one that reported it. Catholic News Agency uh, says that uh, it's not the case or that they have not been able to verify it. But interestingly, Terry Mattingly puts Catholic News Agency essentially in the same category as Church Militant, even though they're kind of battling about this, because he says they're alternative Catholic news. Um, he asked this question, so it makes you kind of you kind of want to laugh out loud, but listen to this. So here's the question that some Catholics, repeat some, mainly on the left, would raise. Can this report be trusted since this story was broken by a, quote, alternative Catholic news source? a theologically conservative news operation linked to <gasps> EWTN and Mother Angelica. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because that's some kind of crazy right-wing conspiracy there. Uh, he goes on, but as our own Clemente Lisi noted last year, I feel like I should be reading this like an old-timey uh, news reporter. It's a new fact of news life. Reporters have to start reading the alternative Catholic press. CNA and other alternative news operations have been breaking major stories in recent years. Report uh, Reports built on documents and hard sources. So my question is, since when exactly is EWTN alternative? You can't, if you're listening, you can't see me doing the finger quotes. But seriously, is there a bigger Catholic news organization on the planet? I, there might be, but I don't know what it, it would be. You know, or is he just comparing Catholic news outlets in general to secular news outlets in general, because that's a possibility, but he doesn't really make that clear. So I don't know, but CNA is not an alternative news source. They are an establishment news source. Very status quo, very, uh, you know, I can't believe that this thing that just happened, you know, I can't see that it's part of a pattern of behavior. It's just this one-off thing, defending the Pope, pretending like there isn't just a, a huge list of, things that all work together to form a big puzzle. Sometimes I feel like they only report on the one piece of the puzzle and they pretend like that's the whole puzzle. And it's like, no, you have to look at the tapestry. So I have my objections to their coverage of certain things. Very rooted in post-conciliar. <laughs> I want something else to say other than status quo, but it's very blue-pilled a lot of the time. So they're not alternative, Terry Mattingly. Not that you're listening to this, but I'm just saying. Mattingly also mentions Rod Dreyer's piece uh, that also came out this week entitled In Praise of Tabloid Catholic Journalism. Now, Dreyer has become kind of a friend of mine over the last year or two. He has, I haven't met him yet in person, but uh, we've corresponded about some of the stuff that's going on in the church and about the damaging effects that covering the stuff that's going on in the church can have on your faith. Because Dreyer, obviously, after covering the sex abuse crisis as a new Catholic in the early 2000s, wound up leaving the church to go to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and uh, so obviously Rod and I don't agree on lots of things. However, he's proven to be a true friend and a good friend in many respects. And uh, we have actually collaborated on a couple of stories that have helped to, uh, to out some sexual abuse stuff that's been going on in a couple of places. Um, and so, yeah, he's familiar with our work and, um, he read it the same way that I did, you know, and when, when he published his piece, 
he flat out interprets uh, Weigel as talking about publications like ours. He opens with the sentence, Catholic commentator George Weigel doesn't want fellow Catholics reading aggressive conservative Catholic websites like, presumably, LifeSite News, 1 Peter 5, and Church Militant. He goes on saying, I can't fault his recommendations for those mainstream websites that he suggests at all. They're all quite good, and I check in with them regularly. But it's more than a bit rich in 2020 after events of the last two decades for Weigel to put down those other websites. He's right that they at time lead with their passions and go beyond what the knowable facts state. Well, I mean, there is a propensity in certain alternative Catholic media towards more sensationalism. Not going to name names, but there are times when I've been like, really? That's not, you don't need to report that or you don't need to report that that way. There are times I've seen stories where it's like, I don't know what the purpose of this is other than to kick uh, a bad guy when he's down, you know, rhetorically speaking, you know, reporting on somebody that's been an ideological opponent in a way that really nobody needs to know about. Yeah. I was going to mention it. I'm not going to mention the story, but there was a story that I was thinking about in this regard. So yeah, there's a tendency sometimes towards sensationalism. There's a tendency sometimes towards, oh, let's get the story out and we'll worry later about whether it's right. I don't want to be that guy. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. There have been times when I've agreed to go ahead and move forward with a story that a writer felt very strongly about, and they felt confident in their sources, and their sources weren't willing to go on the record, and the story wasn't nailed down, and then we get a denial from the person the story is about, and it's like, then you're just kind of out there swinging in the wind. Um, it's only happened once or twice. I don't intend to let it happen again, but this is part of the learning process because, again, I'm not a trained journalist. Um, it's dicey. And I actually think that it's important um, not to be first, but to be best. I don't care. Most of the time, I really don't care about breaking stories. Because if you break a story, you're also the most likely to get it wrong. You don't have all the facts. They're not all in. You may not have the best sources. Um, it, and it just gets dicey. I would much rather be the guy who provides the most insightful commentary on a story that somebody else broke than to be the guy who breaks the story. But that's, again, one of the subtle differences that people don't necessarily think about between our outlet and others is we're not journalists. We're commentators. Um, that's more of what we do. So... Anyway, um, Dreyer goes on to reference the American Conservative, which is the publication where he writes today. And uh, he describes something that I'm personally very familiar with, which you know is the way being in a unique position, looking at things from a different angle, can allow publication insight that everybody else doesn't necessarily have. And in this case, it's the American Conservative in the Iraq War. He writes, there are some truths that are so terrible that it takes people who are already relatively radicalized within a culture or institutions to see them. This magazine, the American Conservative, saw the folly of the Iraq War more clearly than did all the mainstream conservative magazines and writers, including him. That crazy old far-right wingnut and unpatriotic conservative, Pat Buchanan, as so many conservatives, mainstream conservatives called him at the time, 
called the most important U.S. policy issue of the 21st century right, and the rest of us got it wrong. I would include myself in that category. Um, Buchanan's alienation from the mainstream of establishment conservative thinking gave him a vantage point for seeing things that the rest of us could not. People who think that establishment conservatives really knew that Iraq was going to be a disaster but went along with it anyway are simply wrong. We were all too invested in our own narratives to imagine otherwise. This investment in a narrative, confirmation bias, status quo, this is a real problem. It, it's, it's a shell that goes over people and they just can't see through it sometimes. And it takes something unusual to break that. And once you start breaking it, then others can begin to follow suit. But somebody has to go first. So I can speak particularly to the Iraq war question because I was fresh out of college um, and I was the biggest neocon. I mean, I got my talking points from talk radio. I got it from Fox News. I got it from online news sources that would have been associated with that type of thinking. And I remember sitting there in my office of the crappy government contractor I was working for at the time in 2003 um, and literally eating a bag of popcorn, watching the shock and awe campaign start. Um, we were all watching it on our computer monitors because it was the beginning of the streaming of news in 2003. It was starting to happen more. And um, just thinking, yeah, man, theater of war might as well be the movie theater. This is, this is great. Look at us, you know, we're doing this thing. And, uh, a few years later, after reading quite a few issues of the American conservative, I would say that was the most influential. I was also reading a lot of new Oxford review at the time. Um, I had a lot of time on my daily commute. I was working in DC or very near to DC and you're on the Metro, you're on the train, you have a lot of time to read. And that, along with some of Buchanan's other writing and some some other out-of-step political thought, and I realized my politics were crap. That's what they were. That I really didn't know what I was thinking, I didn't know what I was talking about, that I had bought into a narrative. And I distinctly remember driving down the Dulles Toll Road, and if you've been to Northern Virginia, anywhere near D.C., you know the Dulles Toll Road, uh, and I was coming through the toll gate at Tyson's Corner, and I have this thought, this epiphany. I think I was listening to a book on tape or something, and I had this thought of, holy cow, I am 30 years old, 31, I don't remember where I was, and I am just starting to learn how to think for myself for the first time. I am just starting to break out of this tribal, you have to think like everyone else thinks if you want to be part of the group and call yourself the group name, thinking and actually look at things critically and say, nah, I don't know that I feel that way. I was just starting to be able to say, yes, tribe of mine, I agree with you on point A and I think on point C, but on point B, I think we part ways a little bit. I didn't have to buy a slate of views. I didn't have to buy a party platform. I didn't even have to have a label with which to identify myself. 
And it took me three decades of life on this planet before I started going, huh, I can actually think about things for myself. And I don't have to just take the script and run with it. I felt dumb that it took me that long. But I think a lot of people never break out of it. They read somebody or something that they trust and they say, well, that's my opinion too. And that's dangerous. And that is why establishment media is so powerful because they have a large group of people who have been trained to think that way and they're just going to buy it hook, line, and sinker, whatever you sell them. And so they're just going to take it and run with it. And it's why alternative media sources, if they have integrity, are going to say to you, think for yourself, research this stuff. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Look it up, figure it out, do your own homework, make sure that you actually believe what I'm saying. If I've gotten something wrong, let me know so that I can fix it because we're about the truth. We're not about the clicks. We're not about the numbers. We're not about making you know shareholders happy, whatever. We are beholden to the truth and to the people who, who want it from us. Um, so Dreyer continues, going back to his column, uh, referring back to his own experience covering the sex abuse crisis in 2002. He says, the same thing happened to a lot of smart and dedicated people, both conservative and liberal, in the Catholic Church regarding the sex abuse scandal. People just didn't want to believe these things were true or could be true. They sounded too outlandish like something out of the hysterically anti-Catholic Jack Chick comic books. But in most cases, the stories turned out to be true. Little of it surprised regular readers of The Wanderer. Whatever bad news is yet to come out of the Vatican and the U.S. Catholic Church, the people who read the vividly reported, semi-tabloidy Catholic news sites are going to be less surprised than those who don't. And you should be less surprised, because we tell you, this is what's coming, and how do we know? Well, first of all, we're kind of good at pattern recognition and prediction, but secondly, and this is the real secret ingredient in the sauce, these guys tell us what they're going to do over and over again. And that's the craziest thing to me is they say, we're going to do this thing. And everybody's like, no, they're not going to do that. That's crazy talk. And we're like, yeah, they are going to do this thing. Look, this is where they said it. And they're like, no, that wasn't the Pope who said that. That was just his best friend from Brazil. And we're like, yeah, who do you think knows what the Pope thinks? And they're like, not that guy. There's no way. And it's just blinders up, right? And so we consistently say to you, look, these are his friends. These are the people he surrounds himself with it. Did he tell you? No. Are they saying it? Yes. And then it comes to pass, and it's why we point it out when it happens. It's not just to pat ourselves on the back. It's to say, look, we told you that this thing was coming, and then it came. And this, we hope, will help you to recognize that we have credibility when we tell you something is going to happen because we're establishing a track record, because we have to sing for our suppers over here, because we don't just have people who are like, oh, give me more of the same thing all the time and always tell me the convenient lie that makes me feel comfortable. We tell you things that you don't necessarily want to hear, and so we have to prove to you that you should believe us when we tell you. That is one of the burdens of being outside the mainstream. So I'm, this is not a pity party. It's just this is why we do it. And if you're ever wondering why the heck is it's not just I told you so. It's look, we got it. And we keep getting it. And it's important because the next time we tell you, 
Maybe you'll believe us. So it's been interesting to watch people red pill over time. I think we've seen a massive shift. Now, alternative Catholic media, we're still important. We're still relevant, but we're getting a lot more traffic on these controversial topics from bigger mainstream publications because we've made it safe for them to have those conversations. We have laid down suppressing fire. We have brought the controversies into the mainstream and we have made it possible for them to talk about it without having to tiptoe around it for fear that they are, you know, on untouchable ground. Somebody who has actually surprised me a little bit is uh, Dan Burke. Now, Dan Burke ran the National Catholic Register for years and became the chief operating officer and president of EWTN. I, I feel like it was relatively recently, within the last few years. I think he ran the register for longer and then he became COO and president of EWTN. And just this week, uh, this, sometime in the past week, he has announced that he's resigning his position, which nobody really saw coming. He wrote about it, and reading between the lines, I think, this is my interpretation, that you can see there's more there than meets the eye. You tell me. He writes, In the end, my decision to leave is based upon a combination of the deep wounds in the church, my own mortality with respect to the years I have remaining, and my assessment of where I can have the greatest impact on healing the church and advancing the mission that Jesus has entrusted to every baptized Christian, go unto the world and make disciples. So he's withdrawing to run the nonprofit that he started that's got work going on a bunch of different fronts. But I want to parse this a little bit because the first thing he mentions in his decision-making process to leave, the deep wounds in the church. Why would that make you leave? a media organization uh, that has the power to address them unless you feel like you don't have the power to address them. Now, there could be another reason. It could be just that the deep wounds in the church are causing me struggles to look at them every day, and this isn't making me happy, and it's not good for my spiritual life, and I want to get away from it. I mean, that's a real thing. It's a thing that I face. It's a thing that everybody who does this work faces. We all talk about it amongst ourselves. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic, right? Linda Richmond. Come on, Saturday Night Live. Dating myself. Um, Mike Myers, anyone? No. Okay. So we talk amongst ourselves about this um, because it can burn you out really, really badly. The, the line that we use is, you know, if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss stares back. Looking at the scandal and the crisis in the church all the time um, is harmful to your love of the church. Now, there are those who would say it's because we exaggerate it or we obsess about it. That's wrong. It's there every day. I would say, as objectively as I possibly can, I do believe that right now, in the leadership of the church, at the very least, there is more bad than good. There is more harm being done to the faith than good being done for the faithful by the bishops, cardinals, pope, and even many of the clergy, many of the priests. Those who would object to that statement, I simply ask you, you know that more than 90% of Catholics admit that they contracept. 
you know that belief in the real presence continues to decline. I think it's less than 50% now in very important demographics like, you know, 20 to 45 or whatever. I don't remember the demographic, but we're not Catholic anymore. The majority of people don't believe or don't practice fundamental things that keep them in a state of grace, out of mortal sin, and away from hell. They just don't. So the church has more bad than good in it. That is, I believe, an objective fact right now. I think that there is a calling that is going on. There's going to be a falling away. There is going to be a reduction in the number of physical church buildings. There is going to be a, a reduction in the amount of church property. People are not giving money to bishops anymore. Bishops aren't going to be able to sustain you know, their little empires and fiefdoms. Um it's going to shrink. It's going to contract. The number of actual practicing Catholics in the world who give a damn is less than 10% of the total reported. You know, total reported is like 1.2 billion under, I would say probably under 100 million if we had to guess based on what we know now. Could be more. Could be, you know, more in the developing world. Could be less. I don't know. Um, but there's more bad than good in the church. And so looking at that every day and coming to that recognition and then asking yourself, well, what does it all mean and how do we deal with it? That's hard. That is really hard to grapple with because you believe that the gates of hell won't prevail, but then you're like, well, what would it look like if they did? Because this is pretty bad. So he cites the wounds in the church. He cites his own mortality with respect to the years he has remaining. This is the Archbishop Vigano thing, right? I'm an old man. I'm not going to be here much longer. I have a conscience. I, I have to be able to answer to God. I'm going to say this stuff. And thirdly, you know, making the assessment of, is my mission actually helping people? Is it actually advancing the gospel? I think these are worthwhile reflections from uh, Mr. Burke. Um, but it's interesting because if I'm not wrong, and if these things are at least partially the fruit of recognizing just how problematic things have become, that's a long trip from where the register and the AWTN were in, in 2015. Because in 2015, they were pushing the status quo hard. I mean, remember Jimmy Aiken with all the millions of things to know and share? That's where they were usually published was in the register. 12 things to know and share about why Francis didn't really do the thing you saw him do. You know, it was dumb. It became a punchline. It became a joke. Um, there was also an article that came out in 2015. Um... And it was about when the Pope met with Evo Morales, the socialist president at the time of Bolivia. And Morales gave the Pope a, a crucifix, but it wasn't really a crucifix. It was the corpus of Christ nailed to a hammer and sickle, you know, the Soviet symbol, the communist symbol. And at the time, a lot of people were reporting in the mainstream Catholic press that the Pope was offended by this. And, you know, with resting Bergoglio face, it's easy to think he's disgusted by things because he always looks disgusted. But he was not, in fact, disgusted. He did not, in fact, say, this is not okay, or whatever it was that they reported that he said. He actually came out and said, no, I was fine with it. I wasn't offended. In fact, he laid the, the thing, the damnable, blasphemous thing at the feet of Our Lady at a shrine or an altar to her because that's what you do with blasphemous things, I guess. I mean, if you want her to step on them and crush them, fine, but it, it looked like an homage. So he said he was fine with it. There was no problem, no offense, right? But the National Catholic Register had reported that he was offended, that it was a problem, that he objected to it. 
And I don't remember if it was a wire service story or not, but we, uh, myself and Pat Archbold, who, you know, at the time I think was writing for the register, he may have just recently been fired because again, he was too critical of the Pope. So they dropped him as a columnist, Pat Archbold, me, we go to their, one of their editors, um, and we say, Hey, look, this is factually incorrect and it is misleading and you need to correct it. You need to fix the headline. And we get this back and forth of, oh, well, it wasn't our headline, you know, it was a news service thing. And, oh, well, it doesn't even matter. And I don't remember what the excuses were because it was five years ago. But we, we, we had it back and forth like three or four different times. And finally, I think we got them to update the title a little bit, but insufficiently. And no retraction was issued. So this is a problem, right? So when you publish a story... You can always issue a correction if something comes to light later on, and that's fine. You should do that. You should issue updates. You can do it on the original. That's fine. But when new information comes to light that turns the story completely around, that 180s the original coverage, you need to, to publish something new. You need to issue a retraction. You need to say, hey, we got this one wrong because that's the, the thing you do when you have integrity because otherwise who's going to go back and reread the original article that they've already read with your little update correction to it, they're not gonna know. So what do they do? They keep sharing that same article with everyone. And then anytime somebody was like, actually the Pope said it was okay, boom, out comes the National Catholic Register article that's already been debunked and that we've already brought to the attention of the editor. And they're like, no, nah, look, see, credible news source says that, that he said he was offended by it. That's why it's a problem. But we couldn't get that to happen. So we actually published an article, Pat wrote it, uh, published it at 1 Peter 5 about this whole process of trying to get this resolved. It wasn't resolved. And um, I reached out to the editorial staff, including Dan Burke. He was not on the original exchanges. And I said, look, we published this article. We would love to have a statement, an explanation, a clarification, a retraction, something. We're looking for an opportunity to give you credit because we're all on the same page. I would like to believe we're all Catholics. We're all working for the same thing. Please give us an opportunity to say you did the right thing. No response, nothing. That was one example. Next example happened uh, the following year when Dan Burke posted something to his Facebook page um, about how he had unfollowed five of his Facebook friends whom he called One Peter Fivers. I think he may have used that phrase before I did, and I liked it, and I kept using it because One Peter Fivers is a cool, cool little name for our tribe. Yes, it's a tribe, but no, you don't all have to think the same way. Anyway, he said in his Facebook quote, and I quote, folks can't distinguish the real from the hyperbolic rant, meaning 1 Peter 5 readers. Can't, can't make that distinction. So along comes Father Stephen Imbarato, who is a member of Priest for Life, a very well-known priest in the pro-life movement. He says, well, he didn't even recognize on our Facebook page any of the people who are posting, commenting, writing, whatever. Burke responds, and he says, well, yeah, because you're intelligent. Because you are intelligent, was his response. So I wrote this all up in an article at the time. Uh, now remember, in the context of 2016, we have the fruit of the two synods, the neutron bomb that's Amoris Laetitia, all the controversy that came with it. You know, I'll, I'll put all the links to everything in the show notes today so you can actually see these articles if you want to look at them. Um, but, you know, we were at a turning point where pretending it, the emperor still had clothes wasn't really possible anymore. And so this was a real slap in the face. 
Um, but I wrote the article and I called him out and I said, you know what? This isn't good. This isn't how it should be. Uh, but I also said at the end of the article, I'm letting my, our readers know that this is what they think of you. At the same time, you should still read the National Catholic Register when they're doing good work because I think that's how it should work. I think that we should seek out the truth wherever we find it. I think the genetic fallacy, you know, the idea of discounting information just because of the source uh, is a fallacy for a reason. I, I think that there are publications out there that do some crappy stuff and that also still do meritorious stuff. And the meritorious stuff should be praised. It should be consumed. It should be shared. It should be incentivized. Like, hey, you did good stuff here. How about we, we'll share your work on that and we'll praise you for that. And the bad stuff we'll criticize. That's my approach to consuming content media news information. Um, what was interesting is a few months later, and this is the important part of this story, uh, because I don't want to just make Burke out to be a villain. Uh, he reached out to me privately, but he reached out to me with an unsolicited apology. He wrote, Steve, I deserved the skewering that you gave me. I don't think you or your readers are stupid. You guys are doing some good work. It was a private apology, so I didn't make it public. Um, I'm doing it now because I think it's relevant to this discussion, and I don't think I'm talking out of school here. Uh, I kind of wanted to wait and see if he would ever say anything publicly. And maybe he did on his Facebook page. You know, I, I didn't follow him enough to know, but I never saw anything. But because it was a private apology, I didn't make it a public comment on the article that I'd written. I just left the article there. Um, but I still appreciated it. And several times after that, he reached out to me on different things, you know, always very cordial, wanted to collaborate on some stuff, offered me a book to review, um, you know, offered to pray for my family when we were going through a really rough time with one of our kids, there was stuff that was going on. And, you know, I got the sense through our interactions, he even sent me articles a couple of times that were published at the register. Uh, that were very much in my wheelhouse as the publisher of 1 Peter 5. And so I got the sense over time he was red-pilling. He was waking up to the fact that stuff in the church was getting crazy and out of control. Now, is he still way more status quo than me? Probably. I mean, and I don't know the guy. I didn't have to work with him. I don't know his character. But I got the sense that he had moved significantly in the direction of recognizing and, and why probably the apology even came is that he realized we're not wrong. It just felt wrong because what was happening was wrong. We were the messenger. We were just reporting what was wrong. We're not the ones making it happen, right? And that's the, the unsung uh, heroism, I guess. I don't want to call ourselves heroes, but I mean, that is the role. That is the work. That is the burden you have to carry when you're alternative Catholic media. You have to go out there. And say the things that make people throw rocks at you until they realize, oh, wait, you're, you, you're actually telling the truth. You said something I don't like and you hurt my feelings and made me feel bad. And I tried to, you know, throw these rocks at you for doing it. But now, whoa, hold on. I'm realizing that you guys had it right all along. And so that happens a lot. Um, I think the EWTN situation, though, is continuingly interesting. I don't know if he had clashes with people internally. 
I do have the feeling over the past few years that there are forces within EWTN who seem to want to keep their people on a short leash. Um, I mean, Deacon Nick Donnelly was writing for EWTN Great Britain for a very short time, and they started canning his articles and finally fired him because he was too outspoken in his criticism. We actually republished a couple of his articles. One of them was the one about um, how some of the cardinals were being reported to have had buyer's remorse about electing Francis because he was doing too much damage and drawing too much negative attention and criticism, and they wanted a more diplomatic candidate in the next conclave, and they were turning their eyes toward Cardinal Perlin, who's the the prefect for the Vatican Secretariat of State. Um, and, you know, much more diplomatic man and kind of wanted Francis to just resign and get out of the way so they could put somebody better in there. It was an important story. And if I'm not mistaken, they pulled that story. So we published it. I know we reprinted a couple of his stories, but I think they pulled it and we had to publish it for him. And then not long after that, they stopped having him write. I've always had the sense that Ed Penton, you know, the Rome correspondent for the Register, has to be very careful with what he's reporting from Rome. His advantage is that he's a great journalist. So if he's publishing something that was commentary, there's no way he'd get away with it. You know, you can't publish cr a critical commentary of the papacy in the Register. I still don't think that's possible. But Ed just reports facts, and he backs them up, and he documents them, and he calls people, and he gets statements, and then it's like, well, look, this bad thing happened. And you can't deny it. I don't know, maybe they're still pulling some of those stories if they make things look bad. In all of this, you know, Raymond Arroyo, by the way, is another one. I think he's been a rock star. The guy, I didn't see it in him, and then he's used his show the world over, the papal posse, especially with Father Gerald Murray, who's been fantastic. They have been hammering the stuff that's been going on in this papacy that shouldn't be. They've been fantastic about it. And I give them all the credit in the world because... They're waking up people that nobody else could, and he has a huge audience. And I don't know if he gets away with that because Mother Angelica loved him and he was sort of the heir apparent to the mission of EWTN. I don't know if it's because he built their news organization and, and has brought in so many viewers. I really don't know, but I give him credit for doing it, and I think he has a ton of integrity for doing it even though it's unpopular. And he's, you can tell he's sincere. He's really concerned about it. It's really bothering him. I follow him on Twitter. I mean, he, the guy knows that there's a big problem in the church. One thing that's worth noting before we move off the topic of EWTN, and I don't know how relevant this is, but the CEO of EWTN, Michael Warsaw, he was appointed in 2017 to be a consultant to the Pope's Secretariat of Communications. That is the same dicastery that James Martin S.J. is also a consultant to. So, you know, I don't know what that means for him being part of a news organization that should be covering the Vatican, but also being pulled into the dicastery that offers outward external communications for the Vatican. To me, that looks like a conflict of interest. Um, and even if it isn't, I wouldn't want a member of my organization to have that level of closeness to a Vatican that we should be able to feel free to be critical of. That just poses a problem for me. Now, I don't know Michael Warsaw from Adam. I don't, he could be a great guy. I have no idea. Maybe it doesn't influence him at all. Maybe he's willing you know, to put it on the line and have the total integrity of saying, I don't care. If you kick me off the dicastery, we're not going to change our coverage for you. 
But there's this tit for tat thing that happens. Somebody gives you a ton of money. Somebody gives you an important role in an organization. And next thing you know, you're soft pedaling and you're asking people, well, lay off, you know, lay off with this story. It's a little too harsh. That's what it looks like to me from the outside looking in. Maybe it's not. I don't know where the, where the, the forces against truth are coming from, but I can't help but wonder. And again, this is my total speculation, but reading between the lines of what Dan Burke wrote, I sense frustration. I sense that he feels like he can't do the good work that he wants to do at EWTN. And he could come out tomorrow and be like, Steve's full of crap. He's totally wrong. This is not what I said. But that's just my take. And so take it for what it is. So ultimately, though, this is why I think alternative Catholic media is so important because you just take this this beholden thing off the stage. You just take it out of the way. You know, for us, look, this is why it's so important when push comes to shove for people to support, to financially support independent Catholic media outlets that they want to see continue to thrive. You know, we are so infinitesimally small compared to the big guys. We have a monthly fundraising goal of $20,000 a month. And you do the math, it's $240,000 a year. That's the goal. EWTN has a total revenue of $60 million in 2016. $60 million. They had over 350 employees at that time. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of money. And it should buy them a lot of influence. And their audience sizes are huge. You know, for us, 2016 was probably our most important year um, because we were a little fledgling publication that nobody had ever heard of a year prior. And, and then we were out there and changing the narrative. We don't have anywhere close to the audience that these larger outlets have. I think we reach something like one to two million unique readers a year. Raymond Arroyo's The World Over boasts an audience of 350 million households per week. Per week. I think that in the entire almost six-year run now of 1 Peter 5, we've maybe reached seven or eight million unique viewers. I mean, it's crazy per week, 350 million per week. However, I would also say that in 2016, when it came to the aftermath of the family synods and the publication of Amoris Laetitia, I would wager, I can't prove it, that we had more influence than EWTN. So why do I say that? I think that the story changed about the synods and about Amoris Laetitia because alternative Catholic media like us pushed back. One Peter Five alone with our little skeleton crew of writers is like fewer than 10 regular writers in the history of our publication. There's a lot of people who've contributed once, but I would say it's definitely less than a dozen regular writers for One Peter Five. We've published almost 500 articles that mention Amoris Laetitia. Uh, I don't know how many of them were specifically on Amoris Laetitia, but it's a lot, and we've we've brought it in to almost 500 articles. I also know that when mainstream media was looking for an opposition voice to discuss Amoris Laetitia when it came out, who did they go to? Us. I was on Huffington Post Live 
I was on, I think, American Public Radio. can't remember the name of the show. Uh, I was interviewed by BBC Radio, and I was also on Fox News. Uh, all four of which appearances I did not solicit in any way. They reached out to me and asked me to talk about Amoris Laetitia. Um, also, when the Pope came to the United States in 2015, which was right in the middle of all this, it was September of 2015, uh, I was asked to write op-eds for both USA Today, which I believe is the most widely circulated paper in the United States, and the Washington Post. Um, I don't know if I did an op-ed for the Washington Post. I was interviewed by the Washington Post. I can't remember if I did an op-ed. But, I mean, I didn't look for any of those. I don't have anything on our website, like, you know, for media appearances I, that I can remember putting up. These were things that people who were looking, who were Googling, who doesn't like a Morris Letizia, who doesn't like, who has something worthwhile to say about this, they were looking and they found us. You know, and, and I kind of have this image in my mind of a pond full of, like a koi pond full of black uh, fish, right? Little black goldfish. And there's one bright orange there's hundreds of these black ones and there's one bright orange when you're different you stand out when you tell the truth when everybody else is is just saying no no keep your head down everything's everything's normal everything's fine there's nothing to see here don't look at the explosions behind me and you're like no the emperor has no clothes he's naked people notice that and so small doesn't matter because you have outsized influence. And I just think that truth is an incredibly powerful thing, especially when it's spoken to a world that's longing to hear it, that's unaccustomed to hearing it, that's used to being lied to. And so if you're absolutely committed to telling it, if you're willing to go all in on the risk, if you're willing to serve at the pleasure of your audience, your readers, your listeners, your viewers, if you're willing to submit the entirety of your work to God's will, you can, accomplish, you can accomplish some pretty amazing things and do things that you didn't think were possible. I didn't think 1 Peter 5 was going to become what it became. I didn't think it was going to grow so big. I didn't think it was going to be so significant. I didn't know what role it was going to play when we started it. It just felt like it was the right thing to do at the right time. So again, I encourage you, no matter what, no matter what alternative media you like, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably like one of your five, but maybe this is your first time listening. Maybe you prefer Taylor Marshall. Maybe you like the Rules for Radicals guys. Maybe you're a church militant person. Maybe you love LifeSite News. You know, whoever it is, support them, financially support them, because it's the only way we get this stuff done. We don't have $60 million in revenue. We don't have people writing six-figure checks. You know, we don't have people buying us a TV studio. I mean, Mother Angelica did some amazing things, and I don't begrudge her at all, but I think she had one donor that wrote her a check for $23 million so she could buy a TV studio. That's not something I can conceive of. We don't have a lot of large donors. We have had a couple of significant donors over the years, people who donate five dollars or $10,000 in one shot, Almost always, they are anonymous. Actually, I think in every case, 
Well, in almost every case, they've been anonymous through a charitable foundation, so I can't even find out who they are. Nobody has ever, ever tied a string to a donation and said, okay, so I gave you this money, and I'd really like to see you cover this story this way. But the more money people give, the more influence they exert over you, the more they can remind you, well, I did buy you this building, and you are using it as your headquarters. The more that happens, the more inherently beholden you become, whether you want to or not. It's when the marionette strings come out. We have hundreds of small donors that keep us going. And I imagine it's the same thing for most other Catholic media organizations. We need you guys. 32 million pages of content served since 2014 here at 1 Peter 5. Something like 7, 8 million unique readers from around the world. Our donor database currently has, I believe, 4,600 people in it. Less than 5,000 people have made a financial contribution in support of the work that we do. They keep us going. That really tiny rounding error percentage of a group is what keeps us going. Now, we could have gone a different route. So could the other publications. We could have done a subscription route. I, Lacroix International, which is a pretty left-leaning publication, but that publishes a lot of important stories uh, on the church. You know, I subscribe to them through 1 Peter 5, and uh, it's like, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 bucks a year. I don't remember what it costs. But um, if you don't subscribe, you hit a paywall after two paragraphs. That's just how it works. You go to read an article, you really want to read it, and you're like, ah, oh, I can't continue because I have to sign in, and to sign in, I have to have paid. That's actually a really good revenue model. That's, you make more money that way. We've chosen to go a different way, as have most publications like us, 501c3s. We put our content out there for free. You know, I always liken it to like, imagine you walk into a hamburger joint and they're just serving hamburgers and fries all day and they don't charge anybody anything and they just put a jar on the counter and they're like, if it's delicious, could you put a couple bucks in? It's a, it's a weird business model, but we think that our work that we're doing is important and we want to reach as many people as possible and we want to have the influence of reaching as many people as possible. So we put it out there and we just hope that you'll support us in return. And so I encourage you as somebody who myself, I'm bad about hitting the donate button on other websites because I'm like, ah, oh, I'm here to read an article. Get out of my way, pop up, you know, or I don't want to, don't show me this fundraising appeal. I want to read this thing because I'm in a hurry and I got to do this stuff. Whereas I don't even think twice. If there's an article that I have to pay a subscription fee for, I'm like, well, I need the article. I'm going to pay. So I'm just encouraging you, whatever your favorite Catholic alternative media is, if you think they're doing good work, if you want them to keep changing the story, if you want them to keep pressuring the mainstream outlets to have to cover this stuff, if you think George Weigel is a pompous blowhard, because he is, and you want to remind him that, no, <laughs> we're going to read alternative Catholic media in 2020, support whoever it is that you like, even if it's not us, because they will go away if they can't fund it. That's just the reality. They will go away if they can't budget for the stuff that they need. That's just how it is. They will go away if they can't hire the people they need and pay the writers and do all the stuff. They need your help. And so I encourage you to do that. If you want to do it for us, you know where to go. 1peter5.com forward slash donate. But you don't have to do it. We're going to keep giving it to you for free anyway until we can't afford to do it anymore. So 
I've gone on long enough, but I want to thank you because we've gotten to be part of this crazy ride. We are like, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when the history books are written about this time in the church, these apostolates that you go to every day that you read and that you support and that for whatever crazy reason God asked us to found, they are going to be in those history books. We're the ones who stood up and said, no, no, you don't get to get away with this stuff. You did this in Vatican II. And if we had been around then and the internet had been there, then there's not a chance, not a snowball's chance in hell. We would have let you run roughshod over the church. You would have had to fight for every inch of territory like you're doing now. We are here because we love the church. We love the faith. We love the faithful because we want to share with people the beauty of Catholicism, to draw them in to the church and to give them her riches. And we want them to stop stomping on our throats, to stomp on the throats of the faith, to try to confuse people and make them feel comfortable with sin and error and heresy, to make people lazy and stop striving for holiness. They are undermining everything that it means to be Catholic. And we have to stand up. If we don't do it, who's going to? Nobody else will. People who are just constantly telling you how great everything is and how great the Pope is when he is out there trashing the faith, they're not helping. In fact, I, I can only imagine the, the despair that people feel when they see the truth and they go read that stuff. If there was no alternative to that, what would you think? And I hear from those people because you know where they are? They're in Europe. They're in other countries around the world and they'll write to me and they'll say, please, can I translate your stuff into Romanian, into Latvian, into Lithuanian, into Polish, into Croatian, into whatever, wherever it is, into Chinese. I don't think I've had the Chinese, but I've had the other ones. Because nobody in our country is doing this. The people who just read what's being put out, they don't even know anything's going on. They have no idea anything's wrong and they're being led down this road. We need to get this information to the people. And every time I'm like, please do it, translate it, share it, promote it, get it out there because the truth will set you free. So I've gone over time for this week, but I want to thank you for listening. Even though I had to fly solo, you caught me monologuing the whole time. Uh, but hopefully next time we'll be able to get another good guest for you. Everybody's uh, got to get over there holiday hijinks you know you, it's hard to come back from christmas and from everything you gotta actually start putting your work brain uh back in gear again so hopefully we'll be able to get that fired up for you soon i want to thank you for listening i want to encourage you if you're listening to this podcast you know on a podcast app if you're getting it from itunes you know make sure you give us a good rating so that other people can find it uh, a review if you're willing if you are watching this as a video on YouTube, please subscribe. Please like the video. Please share it. If you do subscribe, just so you know, if you don't hit the little bell icon next to the subscribe button, you won't be notified when new episodes come out. They've changed that so that you've got to hit the little bell. So hit the bell button, and then you'll actually get a notification, and it'll be like, hey, there's a new video. And uh, we just want to thank you for everything you've done for us. Uh, 
and making it possible for us to have this impact on the church. And we just ask you to please continue to pray for us and support us, read us, share us. Uh, as we head into 2020, we have no idea what this year is going to bring. I'm not even going to offer a prediction because right now it could go anywhere. I just don't know. So thank you so much. God bless you. And we'll see you next time.